understand the background of what we're going to be studying over the next uh, three months. And the reason why I want to study this is many of us, I think we get um, our information about um, the Exodus from the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston. How many have ever seen that movie? It comes on every Easter, right? And, uh, and, and I, I want to dig a little bit deeper than that. Uh, I think there's um, a little bit more to it than just the movie, The Ten Commandments. And here's what I would encourage you to do. We're going to be going chapter by chapter. And I would encourage you to read through the book and, and study it for yourself and look through. So each week you'll be prepared and, and we can dig into it um, together. Because I believe there's so much more uh, that we can learn than just the movie, The, the Ten Commandments. And some of you say, well, Pastor, I, I, you know, I know this, this stuff. You, you, you may say, Pastor, I'm an expert, you know, with Exodus. I know the stuff. I know about the ten plagues and Pharaoh, you know, finally lets the Hebrews go. And then Moses leads the Hebrew children to the Red Sea where they get into an ark with the animals and then they're led to safety. Okay, about five of you got that, okay? So we mixed up some stories there. So if you didn't get that, this is good for you because uh, we're going to study it and understand what it means for you and I today. And, and listen, we can learn so much from this book. And, and what I desire to, to accomplish over the next 13 weeks is to show you how this book has everything to do with our lives today. And it's not just some book that was written thousands of years ago. The key component to Exodus is God fulfilling his promise through Abraham. God calls this man out of his country. And he says, I'm going to call you and I want to make a great nation out of you. And by faith, Abraham leaves his homeland and travels mile after mile after mile to go to this promised land that God had established, that through Abraham and his descendants would come a great nation where the Messiah himself would come through this. Now, why did God choose him? I don't know. God chose him. It wasn't because anything special or unique. God chose him. He went by faith. And through that, God did a great thing. Now, how many know that Abraham wasn't perfect? made tons of mistakes. How many know that God uses messy people? That God uses all the dumb things that we've done in our life. How many know that God will still accomplish his purpose even when we make bad choices? God is still going to work through those situations. And I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to, we have to be very careful here. Because I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it as a character study. Look how good Abraham was. Look how good this person was. And in fact, when you really look at these great figures in, in the Bible, they made tons of mistakes. And I think sometimes we can read it and just say, well, I need to be like that. But in fact, we've all made mistakes. And they've made mistakes, but God still works through their mistakes and accomplishes his purposes. And that should make all of us go, whew, that, 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 that God can still use me, that God can still take my past and the wrong decisions that I've made and still use it in redeeming and use it for his purposes and his glory. That should make every single one of you in this place say, man, thank you, Lord, that you're a gracious God that you can still use me. And I think a lot of people come into Christianity and, and they're like, well, 
God can't use me or I make too many mistakes or blah, 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 or it's just too hard. And this, that's the freeing thing that God still uses us even through all our mistakes. So the key component there is God fulfilling his promise through Abraham. And even though things may not have, even though things may not have gone the way we've planned many times in our lives, God is still faithful to complete his plan. So let me give you just a quick background here just to establish our study here in Exodus so that we're all on the same page. Exodus is part of the Pentateuch, which means book of five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Exodus is not a, a separate book unto itself, but it's, it's part of these other narratives. So let me set the table for you and, and help bring us up to the point of where we are in the book of Genesis. In order to understand the book of Exodus, we must understand the book of Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, God makes this promise to Abraham that he will make his offspring into this great nation. And through Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, their son, is born. And from Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, Jacob would be born. And from Jacob, he would have 12 sons. And this makes up the tribe's of Israel. And through this, God promised a Messiah that a Messiah would be born. And we understand this to mean Jesus Christ. And so 400 years before the events of Exodus, before their enslavement, before the plagues, before the parting of the Red Sea, there was a famine. And this famine was so severe that it could have easily wiped out the lineage of Abraham. And this is where the latter half of Genesis gets very exciting. Because out of Jacob's 12 sons, there was one that was named Joseph. And his brothers hated him greatly. And here's the reason why. Well, Jacob gave Joseph a beautiful multicolored coat. Many of us know that story. Which Joseph showed off. And his brothers knew that Jacob loved Joseph more than they and Joseph also told them a dream that he would have that they would eventually one day bow down to him. Now, maybe at the age of 17, uh, good old Joe didn't have a lot of common sense in that way. How many of you know if you were starting to brag in front of your brothers, you would get a beat down, right? So maybe he didn't have a whole lot of sense. Maybe he was a little ambitious there. Maybe he was sincere in what he was doing, but his brothers did not like him. In fact, they hated him and they went to an ex extreme situation to, to, to do away with him. And because of Joseph's brother's hatred and jealousies that they sold Joseph and he became a slave and his brothers really concocted a story that wild animals killed him to their father, Jacob. Nice family, huh? This stuff's actually in the Bible, by the way, it's pretty cool. You need to read it sometime. It's a, it's a neat book. So here, here it is. However, that's not the end of the story. Through the providence of God, Joseph, through a series of events, would come to Egypt through his slavery, would eventually travel to Egypt and eventually become one of the highest ranking officials in Egypt. And Joseph would oversee the famine relief that would eventually save his brother's lives. So his brothers came to Egypt, not knowing that their brother was still alive, not knowing that he was this huge high-ranking official uh, uh, overseeing the famine. They didn't know this. Eventually they would come and Joseph would eventually reveal himself to his brothers. His brothers thought, man, Joseph is going to take revenge on us. We are dead meat, right? And what does Joseph do? 
Joseph doesn't show revenge on them. Joseph actually spares their lives. They deserved death, but Joseph spares their lives. And one of the, one of the most wonderful sayings in scriptures in Genesis is when Joseph says, what was meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God is going to use for good. What was meant for something bad, something evil, something that was wrong, God is going to use it for his good, for his good purpose. Can I just say something here? This is where many Christians get it wrong. They think that in their Christian walk, everything should go right. Everything should go purpose, have a, have a, have a perfect purpose and that, that I shouldn't go through these things or these struggles. I want to tell you this morning that God can use those things to draw you closer to him. That God can use those things to show you how much he loves you and cares for you and will give you a greater faith than, than otherwise not going through those things. And so through this events, Joseph would see his brothers. His brothers came to Egypt because they were going to die. And Joseph reconciles with his brothers. And what they do at this point is they live under the provision of Egypt at this point. So now they're living in Egypt. So what does this have to do with Exodus? While their family was living in Egypt, they began to grow. The nation that God promised to Abraham began to grow in the nation of Egypt. And so four centuries later, we come to the beginning of Exodus from Jacob's family comes this great nation as promised to Abraham that God promised him. And now they're thinking they almost got wiped out. There was a famine, but how many know God is faithful to what his promises. And so at first they were welcomed but now there's a new king, a new pharaoh. He didn't like their large numbers and wanted to keep them from becoming powerful. And so, so he punished Israel and through excruciating hard labor, which made them call out to God for help. They were hurting. They were in bondage. They were in slavery. And pharaoh represented, represented something very evil. And he was going to keep God's people down. And he wanted to destroy all of God's people. It seemed hopeless for Israel, hopeless for this nation. This promise that God promised so many years before seemed like it was a hopeless situation. I know for many of you, you look at your situation, it's like, man, this is hopeless. How can God do something here? Let me just say this. Wait on the Lord. He is faithful to his promises. And so, so here they are, they're calling out to God. I just want to say this. What if we really believe that the same God that came to deliver the Hebrew children is the same God today? What if we believed that God truly keeps his promises? What if we really believed that? I believe it would radically change your life. If we really believed that the same miracle working God that, that, that worked through the Israelites could, could work today. If we really believe that, I believe it would radically change our lives. If, if you're looking at your notes there, look at this first point. I want you to see something here. God 
keeps his promises is the theme of the book of Exodus. It's, it's not, we think it's, well, it's the Red Sea, it's the plague. All those things are neat stories. They show God's handiwork. They show how great God is and powerful over all the nations of the world. But God keeps his promises is the theme of Exodus. That's going to be the theme. That's going to be the common thread that we're going to weave through the next 13 weeks. And through all the ups and downs, God is still faithful. And so what if we really understood that and lived by that? And how might that really change our daily living? So what I want to do is I want to jump into the book of Exodus. If you got your Bibles, you can look at the screens here. I want to jump in and look at a couple passages. I want to look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I want to look at a couple verses here uh, to give us a foundation of what is going on at this point. So Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 through 14, let me, let me start there. And this is what the scriptures say. It says, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, who we just talked about, came to power in Egypt. And he said, Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave our country. So, so Pharaoh is walking in fear here. He's fearful of God's people that something is going to happen. They will rise up. They will take over. And so what he does, verse 11, it says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and bricks and mortars filled with all kind of works in the fields. And all their hard labor, the Egyptian used them ruthlessly. So here they began to be treated horribly. Look at chapter 2. Let me read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, because this is where we jump into the stories here. So here's the background. They're treated ruthlessly. Pharaoh oppresses them. And all of a sudden, there's the birth of Moses that God is going to raise up. And so let's look at the beginning of Moses' life. It says, Now a man in the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the bank and she saw a basket among the reeds and said to her slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby and she was, and, and it was crying and she felt sorry for him. And she said, this must be one of the Hebrew babies. She said, then the sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go up and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go. She answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me. And I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And while the child grew older, she took him 
to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. That is Moses' name is so significant. The name, his name means, I drew him out of the water. Water is very symbolic in the Bible, and we're going to see why the water is so symbolic. Uh, in this story of Exodus, specifically in chapter 1 and 2. So what's going on here? Well, the king is, is getting frustrated with the growth of, of the Israelites. And so what he now wants to do is he wants to give an order uh, to, 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 to kill every boy in Egypt and basically throw them into the Nile. He goes, this is going to eliminate any, any chance of, of an uprising from the Israelites. And so, uh, and so Moses is hidden. Moses is by faith. His mother puts him into this basket and puts him into the Nile to, to try to save him. And God uses this to raise up Moses to be this great leader that will lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And so here's the beginning of the story. So this is the scenario. Pharaoh first works them as slaves. Then he would, then he would, then this would not subdue them. And he thought, well, they're keep growing. They keep growing. They could still rise up and have a rebellion. Then Pharaoh takes the next step, genocide, to have the Hebrew infant boys thrown into the Nile. And it would seem like this would be the end. Pharaoh is too powerful. Their situation seems bleak. But God. Everybody say that with me. But God. There, there's, I always want you to know. There's always the but God in the situation. Isn't there? What, what seems bleak. And what seems like. How is this situation going to work out? But God. God is faithful to what? His. Everybody say it with me. God is faithful to his you're going you're gonna to get so sick of me saying that. You're going to be waking up in the middle of the night. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. I, I want you to get that so ingrained into your mind. God is faithful to his promises. So this would seem like the very end. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a couple things here. I want to look at a couple very ironic things in the first part of Exodus. What do I mean by ironic? It's something that happens in the opposite way that it was expected. It's something that happens in the opposite way that it was expected. And there's a couple ironic things that I want to extract out of these first chapters to help us here this morning. Have you ever watched a movie and the ending was completely different than what you expected? Don't you love those kind of movies? You're trying to guess, you're trying to guess. Don't you hate it when someone does the spoiler alert and tells you the ending of the movie? Hey, I saw this great movie. And you're like, nah, 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 right? Don't tell me. I want to be surprised. And a good movie will keep you guessing to the very end. A bad movie is when you already know the ending before it happens two hours before the movie ends, right? That's not a good situation. And so this is a good use of situ situational irony. I love watching movies that I didn't see that coming. I couldn't believe that it was that guy. Or that was the guy. That was the bad person. Good movies will keep you guessing to the end. That is what I absolutely loved about the Scooby-Doo cartoons. Man, I don't know if you're my age. 
When I was a kid, Scooby-Doo was the best cartoons in the world. I remember, how many remember watching cartoons on Saturday morning? That's all we had. We didn't have, you know, you had, you had three channels, maybe four. And you woke up Saturday morning was cartoon morning and Scooby-Doo came on Saturday morning and you didn't have a DVR. You couldn't watch it later. That's when you watched it. And I couldn't wait to wake up on Saturday morning to watch Scooby-Doo. And I remember I used to love who is it, you know, the mystery and who's that person behind the mask. And I always remember at the end of the, the program, you know, they'd always take the mask off the guy, and you're like, oh, it's him. It's Professor Plum with the candlestick in the conservatory, right? And, and then, you know, and then, then what would, the, what would the, the mean guy always say? If it wasn't for you meddling kids, I would have gotten away with it, right? I love Scooby-Doo. In fact, sometimes I still watch it. But anyways, um, so in the beginning of, of chapter 2, what we read about is this Levite woman who, who, who bore a son and, and then hit him for three months. And she saw that he was good. And she took that step of faith by saving his life. And so what she does is she, she places him in a basket, places him in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter finds the child. And she would name the child Moses. And his name would mean drawn out. Moses was drawn out of the Nile. And so what is so ironic about this? Here's what I want to show you what's so ironic about this. So let me give you two things that are ironic about Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2. So if you're taking notes, you can follow along here. But let me give you two things. This is so important because this goes right to where we're living today. The first ironic thing I want you to see is the Nile was supposed to bring death. Death to all infant boys. Ironically, it brought life to this one boy. The Nile represented death. You did not want to swim in the Nile on a leisurely swim. You know why? You're going to get eaten by a crocodile. In fact, if you look at Egyptian history, they have images of crocodiles all over the place because it was a dangerous place. It was dangerous waters. They worshiped these gods out of the Nile water. They worshiped it as like a deity. And so this place, Pharaoh says, this is going to be the place of death. I'm going to show you how powerful I am by throwing all the, all the boys into the Nile to show it as death. And now what's this... Hebrew woman does, this Levite woman does, what she does is she places him in a basket, floats him down. Not sure what's going to happen. Crocodile infested. The place that's supposed to mean death is going to bring life for this young boy. What I, I want you to see something very important because the basket that Moses was placed in in the original language, in the Hebrew language that, that this is written in, is the word ark. The basket that Moses was placed in means ark in the Hebrew language. Now, some of you are thinking, what, is that, that, what does that conjure up when I say the word ark? Noah, doesn't it? It, it conjures up Noah. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This is the word tebha. In the Hebrew language, the only other place that this word is used to describe a boat is the one that Noah built. Now, here's what's interesting. Noah 
built an ark to save his family from the flood. So what's the deeper meaning here? Here's the deeper meaning that I want you to see that God is faithful to what? Okay, you guys are getting it. You're going to be so sick of me after this, but you're getting it. Okay. So what's the deeper meaning here? What was meant for death brought life. The flood was meant to bring death, but they were saved through what? The ark. Okay. So what? Keep following me here. Don't, 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 don't lose me here. Noah and his family would be saved from the flood through what? The ark. The ark represented God's salvation. By faith, Noah would have to trust God year after year after year, building this huge Boat, this huge ark, people probably thinking that he is crazy, right? But he trusted God by faith that God would save them when the time of God's judgment would come. So no one is saying we saved through the ark. God would save the Israelites from Pharaoh and his army by parting the Red Sea and allowing them to go through it. Here's what I want you to catch here. I want you to see the symbolism here and how it's fulfilled in Christ. Remember I said that the meaning of Moses's name is one who was drawn out of the water. The water, when you see water many times in the Bible is symbolic of God's judgment. The flood came as a result of people's sin and rebellion against God. So God brought the flood as part of his judgment. The ark symbolized God's salvation by Noah, putting his faith in God, that God would save them through the flood. What happened at the Red Sea? Moses comes there. We'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks in further detail. Moses comes with all the, Israelite children, they've got the Red Sea in front of them. And who's behind them? Pharaoh's army, right? They've got no place to go. And so what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. They go through the water and make it to the other side. Pharaoh's army comes in and what happens to them? They drowned. The water, <laughs> their fish food, the water represented God's what? His judgment. They were saved through the water. Now, how is this fulfilled? This is what's so ironic. What was meant for death, God used for salvation. God used to save Moses' life. I love that. See, here's why it's so symbolic and how it's fulfilled in Christ. Baptism is symbolic of being saved through the water. Let's go. Let me explain this because first Peter three 21, Peter explains this. He says this and the water and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Through baptism, through the water, we identify with Christ and we are saved. What are we saved from? We are saved from God's judgment. We are no longer objects of his wrath. Jesus took God's wrath upon himself. So when we go through the water, what we're saying is we identify with Christ. We identify with his resurrection. We die to Christ and we are raised anew in him. Our faith in Christ is what saves us from God's judgment. It's not the water that saves us. It's our faith in Christ that saves us. So what saved Noah's family? What saved Moses? What saved the Israelites? Every single one of those situations has a common thread. Noah had faith to build the ark. Moses' mother had faith to put Moses in an ark in a basket. Moses had faith to trust God as they went through the Red Sea. In all three of these situations, they were saved through the water and ultimately saved from God's judgment. What God used for judgment against Pharaoh, against the people that didn't repent in, in Noah's day, um, the judgment of the Nile that Pharaoh thought he would throw against the Israelites. What God used for judgment, he actually used to save his people. How ironic is that? That, that what seems so purposeless, God uses for his purposes. So I want you to see that many times things aren't always going to work out the way you think they are in your life. This is where faith comes in. God, I have to trust you even though I don't understand this. This is where knowledge in the world doesn't work. Because we turn to the world for our knowledge and our understanding. And God says, I don't work that way. I don't work that way. You've got to trust me. What would possess a mother to put her baby in a, in a crocodile infested water? She had, a, she had to walk by faith, didn't she? She had to trust God that God had a purpose and a plan and that God was going to do something. God spoke to her heart to take this step of faith when it made absolutely no sense. But she trusted God that he was going to be faithful to his promises. The second ironic thing I want you to see, first ironic thing we see that was meant for death, God used for life. Second thing I want you to see is this, is that Moses is saved from Pharaoh to one day become part of his court and eventually overcome him to rescue God's people. I love the way God works. Here's the crazy thing. Moses is saved from Pharaoh, who wanted him killed through the Nile, which Moses should have been killed. Now he grows up in his court to eventually one day overcome him to rescue God's people. Isn't God cool like that? I mean, that's just amazing to me. So Moses was supposed to die and through the providence of God becomes part of Pharaoh's royal court. Isn't that amazing how God works that way? And so here's what's so ironic about that. What was, once again, what was meant for death, God used for his purposes to bring life to the Israelites, to release them from their slavery. So it amazes me that Moses is kept safe 
He's kept safe. And God is at work even in the place of hatred and violence. This, this, this place of Egypt that was hatred and violence towards the Israelite people, God raises up a man within that structure to eventually save his people. It's incredible how we can see over and over God's people at the hand of foreign armies and their future looking bleak to the point of complete devastation, yet God would remain true to his promises. And that means everything for you and me today. It means everything. I I hope this story just sticks to you like glue because this means everything to where we are today. Because here's the point. We also are headed for destruction. Every single one of us. Because of our sin, we're headed for destruction. But God, being faithful to his promises, sent us his son that we would find life. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing, listen to me, there is nothing in this world that will save you. It's not your job. It's not how much money you make. It's not how successful you think you can become. It's not the leisure things in this world that will ever ultimately make you happy. Your only hope to be saved from this world is through the ark, Jesus Christ. God sent us an ark through his son, Jesus Christ. He said, climb aboard him. He's the one that's going to save you through my judgment. See, we get mixed up. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? See, it's not about being a good Christian. It's not about just being faithful to going to church and saying, I read my Bible. And listen, there's a lot of good, sincere people that do a lot of good and sincere thing. What saves you is not your good works. What saves you is Jesus Christ. See, what saved Moses, what saved Noah's family was that they put their faith in God. See, it wasn't ultimately the ark or the basket. Listen, it wasn't ultimately the ark or the basket or the parting of the Red Sea that saved the Israelites. What was it? It was their faith. They first had to put their faith in God that he would rescue them. So what does that mean? Stop trying to do it on your own. Some of you are trying to save yourselves by saying, I'll become a better person. I'll try to go to church more. I'll try to read my Bible. I try to do all these things. And God's saying, listen, all those things, you're going to fall short if you do them in your own strength. It's faith. It's your faith that saves you, not your works. So that no one can boast that this was of me. God says, I provided everything for you. Put your trust in me. So like the time of Moses' birth, I love this parallel in the story because, because what we can see in Moses' birth is that his life should have been snuffed out, should have been killed through the Nile. Isn't it interesting how Jesus started his life? Jesus also faced death as an infant at the hands of a madman named Herod who also was jealous, who also wanted all the boys killed, which he did. And so through a dream, Joseph is told to go somewhere. Where is Joseph told to go? Egypt. 
Isn't that interesting? Through a dream that God gave Joseph, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fled to the very place Moses was raised to find security, and that place was Egypt. How ironic is that? Here's the thing that I want you to see as we wrap this up. God can take the ugly, messy things in our lives that we think he can never use and turn them around and redeem them for his good. And so here's what I want to tell you this morning. Don't give up. God is not done working and he is faithful. Here's the thing. Even in your dark place that doesn't seem good, I want you to realize that God is still faithful. See, so many times we're looking for the answers before we're putting our faith in God. God, I just want the answer. I just want to know how I'm going to get out of this mess. And all the time God is saying, listen, what I first want you to do is, do you trust me? And what we learn from these first two chapters is God is faithful to what? His promises. He's going to see it through. But there had to be faith. Things didn't work out perfectly for Moses. Things, even when Israel was released out of the oppression and and Pharaoh eventually let them go, they get out there and now they're faced with another trial. They're faced with this wall of water in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. They still had to walk by faith. They still had to trust him. See, what God wants from your life, are you going to trust me? Are you going to put your faith in me? Do you believe that I can deliver? Do you believe that? Do you trust me? Do you know, am I God over your situation? I love what Corey Ten Boone says here. She says, let God's promises shine on your problems. How many, how many of you have problems today? I'm raising my hand too, right? We all have problems, don't we? And we spend our whole life trying to get rid of all our problems, right? How do I get out of this problem? How do I get out of that? How do I, how do I get out of this problem? And I like what Corey Ten Boone says here. She says, let God shine on you. Use those problems. Say, God, what do you want to teach me here? How do you want to increase my faith in the midst of this problem? How can I know you deeper? How can I dig deeper into your word? How can I glorify you even through this problem? realize that God is faithful. He's faithful. Many of us here today, and we are so beaten up by our problems that they've caused us to go into slavery and bondage and fear. And God says, that's not how I want you to live. It's not how I want you to live. And so we all have problems. And I listen, listen, I know Facebook and Instagram, everybody looks like they have a perfect life, Okay. But when you dig deeper into people's lives, everybody is messed up somewhere, somehow. Aren't we? We're just messed up. We say things we don't mean. We think things we don't say. We gossip. we unbecoming of what Christians should be. Yet God is gracious to us, isn't he? He loves us so much that he's saying, Bart, I'm going to be patient with you. I want to reveal these things in your heart. I'm allowing these things to happen to reveal some things in your heart that need to change so that you can become more like me and that you don't allow these things to overcome your life, to suck the joy and the peace and the freedom 
that I desire to give to you. So how do we walk out of the bondage in our life, the habitual things that we know are wrong? We have to trust Christ to know that he's powerful enough to deliver. That doesn't mean we're ever going to struggle. That means we're never, obviously never think another lustful thought or say a bad thing. That doesn't mean that. But what it is saying is, God, um, I'm opening my heart to you to allow you to deal with me and to allow this situation that I'm going through not to harden me, but to make my heart soft towards you. And so what I would say to you here this morning is dig in. If you feel empty today, if you feel your spiritual life is lackadaisical, I would tell you, dig in. God has so much for you if you just dig in. Allow him to use you. Allow him to do the things in your heart and your life that he's desiring to do. And listen, we all have problems. Your problems don't mean that God doesn't love you or God's ear is unattentive to you. It just means he's saying, listen, do you trust me? I'm faithful to my promises. I will see it through. I've got a purpose and a plan for you, and it's good things. But do you trust me? you got to answer that question. Do you trust him? So, Father God, we bow our hearts before you today. And, God, I pray for every single person in this room. No matter what they're struggling with, no matter what problems they're going through, God, you are faithful to your promises. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us that even through our problems, it's an opportunity to trust you, to allow your promises to shine on our problems. Allow us to turn to you and say, God, you are faithful. I'm going to stand on your word. I'm going to stay faithful to your promises. I know that you're going to see me through. And so, God, help us not to allow those things to immerse us, to overwhelm us to the point to where we lose hope, God. Thank you for Jesus and the hope that we all have in him. That the peace that he gives us, that even though in this world we have tribulation, that we can take heart because Christ has overcame this world for us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us. We love you. We thank you. And Lord, I just pray as we just close this time now, just in song, that God, you would just reveal your hope to every heart in this place today. And as we continue to study and dig through the book of Exodus, you will continue to reveal to us that you call us out to bring us close to you. So may our relationship with you be one that's vibrant and living and active. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for us. For we ask all these things in your precious name. In your precious name. Amen. I I want us to stand today and Let's sing and let's just make this our prayer today as we just close this time out together. Allow God to speak to your heart today. God bless you.